0: Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to Off the Record with Mackenzie Tippett, Episode 8. Um, today is Election Tuesday, and I know a lot of people are stressed out, you know? I mean, I know a lot of people are worried. What's the outcome going to be? You know, we don't know yet, you know? And we actually won't know the official stuff until probably December when the Electoral College votes. So... That's exciting and nerve-wracking at the same time. But if you haven't go, if you haven't voted yet, or if you did vote, congratulations. If you haven't voted yet and you want to, get out and do that. Um, I know that vote.org. You know, like I've said before, they're nonpartisan. You check out what your registration status is, yada 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 yada, where you can go vote, etc. All that good stuff. I voted on Thursday. I think I did early voting, and I know that. I mean, I'm tired of seeing the political stuff. You know, I don't want to talk, you know, nah, it's just like it's it's I've, I'm over it by the time I see the very first ad anyways. But my voting experience was decent. I, I mean, I don't live anywhere where there's a whole lot of people. So a line wasn't a concern for me. And I was, you know, I mean, my first time voting. And so that was really cool. And I know I participated in, you know, campaigning for people to register to vote in general when I was on campus last fall last fall or last last spring semester excuse me and I mean I've I'm pretty passionate about just the the right to vote I'm my dad took me to vote I mean we went together and it was I was like in the car on the way there I was kind of worried I was like are there going to be a lot of people outside wanting to talk to you about who you're voting for etc or are you just good to go? You're able to like walk in. Like I wasn't sure what to expect, and there was only one person standing outside, and he didn't get in anybody's face or anything. Of course, there were a lot of campaign signs everywhere. I went and voted at like the town hall, and there was one person there, and he didn't get in anybody's face and or t- talk to anybody really. He just kind of stood there with his little hat on, and. You know it was nice and then i didn't realize that people some people you know some polling places they don't require people to wear masks inside and so i was kind of confused when somebody walked in without one on but i was like all right <laughs> i guess um but yeah it was it was it was an easier process than i thought and i know some people have voter anxiety that's a thing and they get stressed out about if they're going to do it right um what they need etc and i mean If you don't want to go Google what you need, at least in North Carolina, you need your ID, you know, so uh, your driver's license or knowing your social security number, either one of those. Um, But I mean, my voter experience was like pretty simple, pretty easy. And I've been with my dad before. And I know this is a really drawn out intro, but I mean, we're catching up here. And I've been with my dad before back, I think, in 2008. I want to say um 2008 or 2004 i think it was 2008 and so i was like it, i remembered it in 2008 it was it was a touch screen and you go in and you you know you do it that way and that this time around where we went where my dad and i went to vote it was um sat type so you bubble it in with your pen on a piece of paper my grandfather did um uh, voting by mail and I know a lot of my relatives who voted by mail and a lot of them went and voted in person, like myself. And I'm just excited for everybody to be voting. You know, just, I think it's, I don't know, it's a really cool right to have. And actually in Australia, I know they, they, they'll fine you $500 if you don't go vote. And I mean, some ways I see it, I understand it, and I get it because, you know, that that's an, it's a crucial right to have. And you're, I mean, it's an honor to even have that right, in my opinion. Because there's so many, I think of so many places in the world where they can't voice their opinion on who's in charge, you know what I mean? And so I think it's really interesting, and my dad was telling me when we were leaving the town hall, he's like, I'm really proud of you for doing that because ever since I've been registered to vote, I haven't missed an opportunity to do it. Because he thinks it's just very important, no matter like what you think, that the fact that you just use your voice, and I, I would agree, I think I think that's very important. So I know a lot of people are stressed out. A lot of people are gonna take a two melatonin. at 7 p.m. Clock out at eight and not wake up until they, until the sun rises in the morning, because they're so stressed out about the, like the outcome and everything. And I've seen a lot of the social media videos of boards on 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 downtown buildings and everybody. And I've seen the videos of Rodeo Drive in Los Angeles, all the stores being take like emptied out and everything, and. And that stuff is scary. No matter who wins, the fact that they're preparing for something to happen. And I think that's unfortunate, too, because I don't think no matter who you are, that you should ever go out and intend to cause harm because you didn't get your way. That's childish. I don't care what whose side you're on, whatever. That's just wrong. And I have a relative. My cousin actually lives in D.C. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm praying for him and hope that... I mean, I hope that nobody is actually that stupid. I hope that they're all just, they're just preparing for this for no reason. I really hope. But I mean, it's, it's hard to tell this is 2020, but you know, here we are and you know, we're it's, it's the day today's the day and you know, we'll find out by tomorrow who, who wins the popular vote. And then from there, we'll see about the electoral college. And from there, we'll find out who's the president no matter what it'll still be an old guy <laughs> I was watching SNL this weekend and it was John Mulaney was hosting and I love John Mulaney I think he's the best not the best but he's one of my favorites and he was saying that no matter what happens it'll still be an old guy and I was like you know what John? I think that's really just putting it in perspective for the American people that you know we're getting ch- we might get changed but we're not gonna have, have that much of a change <laughs> so it's just really funny um, But anyways, I am very excited for you all to be here today. I hope that this podcast episode brings you a little bit of joy. And we were going to be talking about how I am associated with friends with a former Hell's Angel, a very different topic, not even closely related to politics. And it might be exactly what you need to hear. Anyways, let's jump into today's episode. I'm guessing since you read the title, you are very intrigued to know how I became friends with a former Hills Angel. And that is of course what I will be talking about today. How I became friends with him, associated with him, my connection to him, his story, etc. He is without a doubt one of the most interesting people I know at all. And is it's an honor to be, as, I mean, somebody who just knows him in general. And it's an honor to be somebody who associates with him as regularly as possible. First off, so you don't get confused, I met the former angel on the island of Grand Cayman. Grand Cayman is an island in the Caribbean. And it is, to me, it's, I mean, this sounds really uppity and cheesy, I know, but it. Grand Cayman to me is, it has the feeling of home. It's, it's like a second feeling of home other than where I normally reside. And I say that because I've been going there and I've been fortunate enough to have been going there since I was in diapers. My parents have been going to the island before it was even commercialized into a tourist and cruise ship island to dive. Like, I think my dad's been going since like the 80s. Anyways, I've been there. I've been going there for a really long time. And every time my family goes, we stay in a locally owned condominium. And the workers know me, they know my brothers, they know my dad, my mom, my family. And they... They know I mean they know my name and they've known me since I was in diapers. Like I said, I've been going there since I was in diapers. And my childhood, you know, a large portion of it was spent on that island. My brother's blanket that he even carried around from him until it was threads was a part of a blanket that was used to cover him up when he was a toddler and in a crib at, at the condominium that we stayed at all the time, you know. I mean, you get my point. I I have a lot of memories there and I mean, I could get around the island without a GPS, right? Right. And I remember running into a glass door from excitement to be there. I can tell you exactly, like, what happened. Like, different stories my parents would tell me after coming back from diving on different trips when I was little. Like, there was one time the same trip that I ran into the glass door. My dad came back from a dive and said he was, like, eight feet away from a hammerhead shark. That my mother almost had a heart attack about that because she was pregnant and she's like, oh my God, why did you even put yourself in that situation? A bunch of different stuff. And I remember touching an iguana without knowing that I, you know, probably shouldn't have at that age. I put, at one point, refused to put sunscreen on my body at all. I think it was like four years old and we had to cut open a huge aloe plant and I had to sit in the hammock and stay still covered in aloe the whole day because I got sunburned so bad, and I remember picking up a crab off of the pool steps when I was five years old, and so, I I mean, I've been to hell and back on that island, and I mean literally to hell and back. Hell is a town on the island of Grand Cayman, and I, I mean, I could go on and on, and I'm not just saying all this stuff to brag about all those things that I have experienced, but mainly to share just how special of a place Cayman is to me. And I guess establish my credibility to speak on who the former Hells Angel is and like why I know him and just his story in terms of living on the island and in just in general I mean I think that just establishes my credibility and why I think I'm I'm like qualified to talk to you about this over the years I have learned more about Cayman the culture how to get around etc but one of my favorite things by far has been the privilege to meet the one and only Doc Carey Doc is not his formal name. His formal name is Doc, is, excuse me, Carrie Hurlstone. He was born in 1936 in, in the South Sound. And Doc Carey ended up, like every, you know, most Caymanian men, he is, ends up going to sea for work. And he joined the National Boat Carrier ships at age 17, but that ended up not being enough excitement for him. So he ended up leaving to join the Hells Angels. How he got involved, he was performing judo moves on a man during a fight. And one of the gang members saw him and they promised to teach him how to ride motorcycles if he showed him judo. And he was like, all right. And he said, I wanted some excitement and I got it too. I was young and foolish and I wanted to learn about motorcycles. A lot of bad things was done, which is not wrong. He said the Hell's Angels, you know, did everything that was bad. And he said that they would fight and smash up nightclubs and beat people up and he is actually a full patch member, and I'll get into who the Hells Angels are in a second, but one of the things the Hells Angels do is they brand you, if you're a member, if you're a full patch member, and he has the insignia of AFFA on his arm, which stands for, which stands for Angels Forever Forever Angels, and, you know, this rogue life ended up not working out for him, and I'll talk a little bit about how he ended up leaving the San Francisco chapter that he was a part of. A lot of you have probably heard about the Hells Angels either in passing or in TV and movies, in random conversation, etc. But if you just in case you don't know that much about them, I'm going to just go ahead and, and tell you a little bit about them. So, the Hells Angels, formerly known as the Hells Angels Motorcycle Club or HAMC for abbreviation, is a worldwide one percenter motorcycle club and members will typically ride Harley-Davidson, Harley-Davidson motorcycles, founded by Sony or Sonny, I think it's Sony or Sonny, I don't know how to say his name, Sonny Barger in 1948, and currently they have 3,500, 3,500 members, and when you join, you are actually in it for life, and when you join, and you're a full member, you are branded with the either the emblem of your chapter or the emblem of the Hell's Angels group in general, or both, depending, I think, on your chapter. And Doc Carey was a member of the San Francisco chapter, which was one of the first chapters to be created. The first one was actually created in, I think, Los, I want to say Los Angeles. I could be, I could be wrong. And it has since, you know, became, become worldwide. But at the time that Doc Carey was a member, it only existed in the U.S., now with that being said they are typically associated with with causing um with causing violence and they are also one of i think they're the largest yeah they are the i think they're the largest motorcycle club in the world and the other four top ones are um the outlaws the pagans and the banditos i think those are the other three that are closely in, in in terms of size close to the Hells Angels, but the Hells Angels are the largest. Now, when you join, you join for life, and if you try to leave, they will find you, and they're one of the best-known so-called outlaw motorcycle gangs, and they have been, you know, associated with criminal activity by law enforcement, and they never, but one of the good things about them, I think, is they never let anybody join who was ever considered ever convicted of, or is a child molester. Good. Good. And they also don't let anybody join if they were ever um, a police officer or applying to be a police officer. So that's just, that's just a few things about them. And typically, before they became a worldwide um, association, they would never go anywhere that they could not get to on their bikes. One of the most famous oso- uh, events associated with the House Angels is the Altamont Concert. Altamont Speedway concert, where they provided some sort of security for the Rolling Stones. And that's what we're going to get into next, because that's what Doc Carey is tied to. And that's the reason why he ended up at Grand Cayman. Altamont Speedway Free Festival was a counterculture rock concert held on December 6, 1969 at the Altamont Speedway in Northern California of the United States. And it had an attendance of about 300,000 people. And it was also supposed to be called the Woodstock of the West. Woodstock had already happened earlier that year in um, mid-August, you know, like four months earlier. And the uh, event, unfortunately, is best known now for its considerable amount of violence. The Rolling Stones were the headliners, and supporting artists include um, Santana, Jefferson Airplanes, and the Grateful Dead. Now, and on the original poster, at the very bottom, it's listed security by Hell's Angels. Normally, like most concerts we see today, all of the supporting artists go went before and then the Rolling Stones were set to, pr- to play last. Grateful Dead ended up canceling their set due to the amount of violence that had happened earlier that day. Mac- Mick Jagger had already been, um, I think he was punched in the head earlier in the day when he was even stepping out of his helicopter. And during that time, if you know anything about Woodstock, and four months later wasn't going to be any different, a lot of people were doing different drugs and a lot of people were very, very, very high. And one of the um, headlining um, violent acts that ended up happening was the death of Meredith Hunter, along with three other accidental deaths: two caused by a hit and run, one caused by LSD-induced drowning in an irrigation canal at the st- at the Speedway. And what it meant, but it said counterculture rock. It included, you know, rock, folk, blues rock, folk rock, jazz fusion, Latin rock, country rock, and psychedelic rock. And it was a very, I mean, crazy thing to be a part of. I mean, if I were alive during that time and I were in the area and I heard about the concert, I would have been like, Rolling Stones, Grateful Dead. Oh, heck yeah. And it's free. Oh, get in the car. We're going. Right. Um, And just the amount of excitement, just it was free. You could be there. You're seeing all these people that you listen to on the radio and everybody's also high at the same time. Is it, it was the perfect recipe for a disaster. And the, the Hell's Angels were set to stand around the Speedway in general and then also in front of the stage. And at most concerts, there are security members that stand in front of the stage separating the artist from the crowd and they'll have their backs to the stage. They're never watching the performance and they're watching the crowd to make sure that nobody's going crazy trying to jump on the stage and hurt the artist or just jump on the stage at all to interrupt the performance. So that's what some of the Hell's Angels were doing and others were just standing around the Speedway making sure that people weren't going crazy. Even though they were crazy, Making sure they weren't doing anything extreme, if you will. And with that being said, there th- things obviously happened. So the death of Meredith Hunter. So during the third song, "Sympathy for the Devil," a fight erupted in the cr- in the front of the crowd at the foot of the stage, prompting you know the Rolling Stones to pause their set, and the Hells Angels had to restore order. You know, tell people to you know calm it, calm down, or else something's gonna happen. And then there was a, like a longer pause. And then they started playing the fourth song under my thumb, and some of the angels got into a scuffle with Meredith Hunter, who was 18 years old, when he attempted to get on stage along with some other fans. One of the Hell's Angels grabbed Hunter's head and punched him and chased him back into the crowd. And then, after like a minute's pause, Hunter returned to the stage, where you know he even his his girlfriend followed him up, followed him up, and like cheerfully was like like, calmed down, like, and tried to move further back into the crowd with him. But he was reportedly enraged and irrational. And according to um, a quote sa- said by Rock Scully, he was so high he could barely walk. And Rock Scully could see the whole audience clearly from the top of a truck by the stage, and he said that he saw that he was- he saw what Hunter was looking at, he saw that he was crazy, he was on drugs, and he had a murderous intent. There was no doubt in his mind that he was in- going to intend to do something terrible to Mick or somebody on the Rolling Stones, or just somebody else on that stage, light person, whatever. And so following the initial scuffle with the Hell's Angels, as he tried to climb on stage, Hunter was then, um, seen- Returning to the foot of the cr- front of the crowd, and he drew a caliber revolve- revolver from inside his jacket, and then Hell's- that prompted Hell's Angels member as a, you know, as just protecting himself, his the biker club, and more importantly, who they were there to provide security for. Um, seeing him draw the revolver, drew he drew a knife from his belt and charged Hunter from the side, and then he ended up stabbing him and killing him. Now this is all on record and was shot by two of the photographers and videographers from the event, one taking pictures in the crowd and one who was on top of a bus. The events that occurred at Altamont Speedway ultimately pushed Carrie over the edge. And he was like, I have got to get out of here. So he ended up returning to Cayman, not even within a year of being a member of the Hell's Angels and making his way back to the island by boat. And back home, though, is as, as much as it was a relief for him not to be a part of the hell's angels anymore he it, it really wasn't easy he found odd jobs as a furniture builder and he ended up building a little workshop that is still in in use today and that's actually how i met him um he started doing drugs and he was drinking a lot, and he even went through a few marriages before he ended up falling madly in love, as in story in, in fairy tale fashion, with a Georgetown woman named Meryl. Georgetown is the capital city of Cayman, but he ended up following in, falling in love with Meryl, and she said, "Hey, if you don't stop doing drugs and you don't stop drinking alcohol, and she's she's like, I'm leaving." And he was like, well, I guess, I guess I'll quit. <laughs> and so he did. And um, he said he finally fought off the demon and he finally got off of it. And he ended up marrying Meryl and having a daughter who her name is Princess, isn't that cute? I think it's cute. But anyways, his wife says that it was Jesus that turned his life around and he and he believes her fully. And he is t- totally turned into somebody mm-hmm he says it would be unrecognizable from from who he was when he was a member of the Hills Angels group and even when he came back to the island for those first couple of years. He said that even for the prize of 10 million dollars he would never take a drink of alcohol again and even even though he's changed a lot everything still nothing one thing that has never changed about Doc Carey is that everything about him is something that causes you to turn your head you know and he is now a collector a world record holder and a jeweler. And we're going to talk about that. He collects. So okay, in his in his little in his in his in his workshop that he has on the island, it's called Doc Carey's Black Coral Clinic. You can look it up, um, and you'll see you'll find pictures of it. And you go in, and there on one wall on one wall there are a bunch of jars with marbles in it. And originally, that's what he wanted to collect and end up being in the world record books for because he always, that was something he wanted to do. And he ended up stopped doing that because he's like, you know, this is just getting too extensive and expensive. And, and I can't do that with what I'm trying to do with my black coral. And so he ended up actually being put in the Guinness Book of World Records for collecting something that none of you are thinking about right now. No, I None of you think about, okay, literally say it out loud. One, two, three, what you're, what you think this man was put in the world records book for. Uh-huh. That's not it. This man was put into the Guinness Book of World Records for his collection of women's bathing suit bottoms, and he has a thong book. When you walk in, it's it's right there to the to the left of the door, sitting on a small table. And within that book is every single name of any of any woman who's ever given him a bathing suit bottom underwear, whatever, where they're from, when they gave it to him. The first edition was in two thousand four, and when you look up you can see all of them and his wife washes all of them so they're clean but they're hanging up there and some of you are like okay that's wildly inappropriate it's completely consensual he just asked I mean it all started randomly because he always just wanted to be in the Guinness Book of World Records but he was like what has nobody ever done boom you know and so that's that's what he's collected and he's he's a really awesome guy he's Funny as heck. And he has a picture of the Queen of England on a toilet bowl seat because he does not like her, and that's hanging on his wall as well. He also has a bunch of controversial flags and memorabilia hanging up in his shack as well. Not so much at all because he supports it, because he doesn't, but he says he has them up there to get a reaction out of people because they should look at that and they should be offended because they should know that it is not correct. Things like the Nazi flag, for example. And a lot of people are turned away when they hear about this because they're like, okay, this man has bathing suit bottoms on the ceiling. He's got, he's got the queen of England on a toilet bowl. He's got, um, he's got these like women's uh, like bottoms on the like ceiling. And it's like, and they're like, okay, this is weird. Okay. He was also part of the hell's angels. So w- w- which would you rather have? But uh, either way, he's an awesome guy. And now he also does black coral um, jewelry, which black coral, you have to be specially certified environmentally. And you have like the government has to give you paperwork that says you are certified to dive and get this. And you were also required to receive not only your diver certification, your general divers certification, but you have to receive special certification to use the concentration of gases that it requires to dive down to the depths at which it grows to cultivate it, harvest it and bring it back up to use. Doc Carey used to do all this stuff himself. He was at one point certified to dive for it and everything, but now he's like, I'm too old. I'm not going to do that. It's it, the amount of concentration of the gases that you have to use is like six times the normal amount, which is already a lot. Think about when you go underwater, even if you've ever jumped into a pool, when you're or gone up a mountain or something like when your ears pop, imagine like black coral grows at the depths of the ocean and it takes like 86 years for it to grow two centimeters or something like that. It's crazy. The it is, it is, and it's such a precious um, coral and I've been fortunate enough to own like th- a, a couple of different pieces and it's just really beautiful how he does it. He, he makes all of it himself. He polishes it, shapes it. He just has people dive for it and and dive and, and get the coral for him. But v- when you go to like buy black coral from Doc Carey, you're not just buying black coral, you're buying like that's, you're, you're, you're exp- it's a whole experience when you go. Because when you go, you're going to hear a story whether you like it or not. And you're going to have a conversation whether, whether you like it or not. And it's he's a piece of Cayman treasure and Cayman history that is is just so special. And it's unlike anything else ever. I mean, this he's one of the coolest people. I mean, I say this, he's the, one of the coolest people ever. And one time I um, my very first piece that I got from him that was Black Coral was a cross that I got, I think in like 2012, I think was when I got it. And I ended up losing it when I went to the natural bridge with my family. And I went back and I was like, Doc Carey, I I was like, I just call him Doc. I was like, Doc, I lost the um, Black Coral Cross. Do you have any others? He's like, I just finished making this one. I was like, oh my gosh, thank you so much. He's like, why did you lose it? What'd you do? I was like, yeah, you're right. I probably shouldn't have like even taken it anywhere because I get superstitious about that stuff. And so now I have my two pieces, one hangs right by my bed and the other one hangs on the side of a picture frame on my wall. And I probably will never wear them anywhere unless like, I, I'm i I'm so scared to lose them. Because I mean, not only are they a, a, a valuable just piece of jewelry in general and, and just a piece of the ocean and everything, everything like that. They're a piece of somebody that I value a whole lot who's who's I mean, he's, he's not going to be around forever. And I just, I can't fathom the thought of like losing it again. Oh my goodness. That like, it's just crazy. But he is one of the most interesting and amazing people ever. He, um, he actually has a little, um, collection of different pictures as well on the walls from his, just from his um, experiences throughout life. And you can Google it. His his house and his workshop is actually called the Bikini House because hence, you know, all of the women's um, bottoms that he has on the ceiling. But one of the most important takeaways from just Doc Carey's story in general is how much he has changed. He was a crazy teenager looking for life, like a life on the wild side. He ended up finding that life and it wasn't everything that it was cracked up to be. He came back, dealt with depression, dealt with addiction, and... He was all over the place, and he ended up finding finding God and finding um, relief from those addic- from that addiction and from the plague of depression and everything like that, and he is one of the most down-to-earth, amazing people, and I can't even put into words how his voice sounds. It's so calming. He sounds like the guy who does the voice of um, Mufasa, but with a Cayman accent, I guess is as how I can put it. He's... He he always wears his jeans and his light blue button up shirt. He has his glasses on and he's just always happy to see everybody. And he is, I'm completely honored to know him at all. And if you ever find yourself in Grand Cayman or just want to Google him at all, Doc Carey Coral, Black Coral Clinic. And he is just one of the gentlest souls now who's who has experienced life on the rocks, if you want to say that. Um, Just an all-around interesting man, and I hope you guys have enjoyed listening to me talk about him. He's actually supposed to go down to the island this year, but unfortunately, because of corona, everything that got canceled. And I know on the island of Cayman, it has been especially hard for them because they are... Isolated from anything that is shipped in and and everything like that, but every time I visit with Doc Carey, a simple intended hello and how are you catch up, it turns into an hour or longer conversation, and I've l- been told and learned so much from this man that I couldn't even fit it into a season's full worth. I mean, of of episodes, I he I've every store every time i go i come out with a new story and you know we my whole family goes and we and we always get a piece of black coral or something else and we sit there and we'll talk to him we'll, my brothers and i will walk out into the beach and you know hang out there and just We've learned so many stories from him over the years, and he is one of the most interesting people. Definitely give him a Google. I hope you guys have enjoyed this episode of Off the Record from McKinsey Tippett. I know I have. I've enjoyed talking about one of my favorite people so much, and I can't wait to see you guys next week. Have a wonderful rest of your day.